Okay, you got a little perk in you this morning, despite the snow. Good. Uh, We are in John chapter 8 this morning. We're working our way through our gospel season, looking at these I am statements of Jesus. And what we're kind of doing is quizzing you. Who remembers John 6? Jesus said, I am what? Bread of life. Look at that. Right there, visual symbol. And I, I went all week without eating this, so that is a success in my book. Uh, and, then, and, then, and then Carter Carter wants it. And then last week we talked, about, we, we talked about our value of being focused on Jesus, and we went a little out of what traditionally are seen as the I am statements, where Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. Right? And what he's saying then is he's actually... Beyond and before, he's, tra- he's, like a, there, he's outside of time, right? And, and so that's, that's important for us to realize that he's, he's kind of expanding our categories. We're going to talk a little bit about that again today. And today we step back a little bit in the text to chapter 8. We're going to start with verse 12 and read to verse 30. Uh, John chapter 7 tells us that all this happens at a, a, a Jewish feast called Sukkot or Jewish Feast of Tabernacles or Booths is what you may hear it called. It's just at the end of the harvest time. People have been working, gathering in all their crops. And and in the Jewish religious calendar, there was this seven-day feast of celebration. People came up to Jerusalem. They rested. They feasted together. We're going to talk a little bit about why this is so important that we understand this feast was we read when Jesus says he was the next thing in in John 8, 12. Who knows what I'm going to say? I am the what? Light of the world, right? I am the smoke, right? Now now I'm the light. Good. All right, so we're going to read John chapter 8, verses 12 to 30. When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And the Pharisees challenged him, here you are, appearing as your own witness. Your testimony is not valid. Jesus answered, even if I testify on my own behalf, my testimony is valid, for I know where I came from and where I'm going, but you have no idea where I come from or where I'm going. You judge by human standards. I pass judgment on no one, but if I do judge, My decisions are right because I am not alone. I stand with the Father who sent me. And in your own law, it's written that the testimony of two men is valid. I am one who testifies for myself. My other witness is the Father who sent me. And then they asked him, where's your father? You do not know me or my father, Jesus replied. If you knew me, you would know my father also. He spoke these words while teaching in the temple area near the place where the offerings were put. Yet no one seized him. Because his time had not yet come. And once more Jesus said to them, I'm going away and you'll look for me and you will die in your sin. Where I go, you cannot come. This made the Jews ask, will he kill himself? Is that why he says, where I go, you cannot come? But he continued, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins if you do not believe that I am the one I claim to be. You will indeed die in your sins. Who are you, they asked. Just what I've been claiming all along, Jesus replied. I have much to say in judgment of you, but he who sent me is reliable, and what I have heard from him, I tell the world. They did not understand that he was telling them about his father. So Jesus said, when you've lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am the one I claim to be, 
and that I do nothing on my own, but speak just what the Father has taught me. The one who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do what pleases him. And even as he spoke, many put their faith in him. John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. This is one of those statements that we know, right? How many of you have never heard that Jesus said, I'm the light of the world? Anybody here never hear that before? You grow up in church, we hear that. Uh, Christians would say, we believe that. Yes, Jesus is the light of the world. But what exactly does it mean? How can a man, even God-man, be light? And what does it mean to be light of the world? Because later on he's going to say, you are the light of the world. So what does that mean for us, that Jesus is the light of the world? The first thing I want you to see is that when Jesus said this, it was a radical claim at a Jewish feast. Now that's why we have to understand the context around where he said, I am the light of the world. It seems like a pretty nebulous statement. Like I say, for those of us who've been around church for a while, it doesn't seem that radical. I'm the light of the world. It's just one of those ethereal statements that we know. But when he said it, he did it in an atmosphere so charged with meaning that it's amazing he wasn't immediately put to death. Verse 20 of the, the, of the thing, it tells where he says these things, and then it says, yet no one seized him because his time had not yet come. Now, why, why would it say that? Uh, let me ask you a question, and I, I like audience participation. How many of you were here last week? Raise your hand if you were here last week. Okay, how many of you remember, not what I preached about, how many remember that I preached a sermon last week? Raise your hand if you did. Okay, good. Woo, it's successful, right? How many of you remember where I preached the sermon last week? Kind of right in here, right? Okay, good. You're doing great. Now, here's... Here's something, and I bet not one of you said this sentence. In fact, I was looking through my wallet, and I found this, which is a $10 American bill, which is about 4000 Canadian, <laughs> right? If any of you said this sentence in the past week, I will give you that $10 bill, okay? It's the last sentence of what I'm saying. I went to church last Sunday, and Jeff preached a sermon behind the pulpit, and here's what, what you have to have said. And he didn't get arrested. How many of you said, and he didn't get arrested? Anybody say that in the course of the week? Yeah, Dwayne Ryder, but you were saying it in another context. It wasn't about my sermon, right, Dwayne? Dwayne says that every week. I can't believe Jeff didn't get arrested. My point is, why would you say that? Why would I, why would I be arrested? But that's what John said. John said, Jesus said these things in the temple court, yet no one seized him. Why would you... You would only say that because the things he was saying were so inflammatory that you would expect a person saying them would be seized. John's kind of saying it in wonder. He, he didn't even get arrested when he said this. He didn't get seized and taken in, into to trial or into prison. And to understand why John would say that, you have to get the context of Sukkot, this, this festival of, of tabernacles or booths. Uh, This was a big feast. It was one of the three where all the Jews in the entire nation were to come back to Jerusalem. So the city was packed. They came for seven days from all over the country into the city of Jerusalem for this feasting and resting from the time of harvest. If you've been reading along with us in John 7, 
people around Jesus say, it's time to go up to the feast. And Jesus actually says, I'm not going to go. And they go on without him. And then he comes on his own later. But it's a time of rest. It's a time of celebration. You know, that's part of what Thanksgiving is. You know, we, we have Thanksgiving kind of at the end of harvest. And it's a, this gratefulness to God for what he's given. But imagine it for seven days with everybody in the city. And, and it was also from Leviticus 23, if you want to go back and kind of read the background of this feast, it tells about it in Leviticus 23. One of the things that God wanted people to do at the end of the harvest was to remember, not only had he been faithful to bring them food, but that they used to be captives in Israel and he had set them free. So he, he created this structure uh, uh, around the, this feast, things that they were supposed to do. Um, and that were, those were the rituals of the feast that you've got to kind of get these pictured in your head. Now, it's called the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. And they were told in Leviticus 23 that when they came up for that seven days, they were to build a booth, a tabernacle, a, a handmade tent to live in to remind them of the time that they spent traveling through the desert from the time they left Egypt until they got to the Promised Land. And, and, I mean, they still do this today. There's a couple of pictures. Here's the first one. This is, a, this is in modern-day Jerusalem today. You'll notice they build these temporary shelters, and part of the law says they have to put branches across the top, and there have to be enough spaces so that you can see through the branches to the sky. We'll, we'll talk about this a little bit. The rabbis taught them to, to build these. So everybody comes to Jerusalem and, and they build these and they live in them for seven days. Even if you owned a house in Jerusalem, in your backyard or on the street in front of your house, you built this. Here's another picture of another one. Same kind of thing. See the branches on top? It still happens today in Jerusalem with the Orthodox. And I want you to get a sense of of what this would be like. How many of you have ever gone, ever gone camping with a large family group or a group of people, right? And, and you've got three or four different maybe campsites or tents and the kids are running all around and you're sitting around. That, that's kind of the vibe that you're feeling in Jerusalem because everybody has come back. The hard work is over. They have seven days just to hang out and relax and enjoy the feast of, of, on, on, on all their crops and, and what, they've, what they've stored away. Jerusalem was filled with these booths, people living in them for seven days as they celebrated God's provision. It's a great time of celebration. And there was a, also an aspect of this feast that they were told to do. It was a daily ritual that they would build each day. Because at the end of the harvest time, it was, harvest was the dry time of year, and so at the end of it, they would actually offer, they would pour out water on the altar as a way of asking God to bring the rains again for the coming year. And, and every morning of the Feast of Tabernacles, well, the first morning, the priests would make this long procession. They had a gold pitcher, and they would walk in a procession with people singing and playing musical instruments down to the Pool of Siloam. And I'm so excited to go to Jerusalem. I was thinking about this because I'm going to get to see how far that is. I had to Google it now. But it would be like leaving here and walking to Hope Secondary School and getting your 
golden pitcher full of water and people walk back in procession and sing. And then every morning of that week of celebration at the temple, the priest would pour some of the water onto the altar and the people would sing. And it was structured so that every day the singing and the music got louder and louder until the last day of the feast, they would take these branches, the palm branches, and they would beat them on the ground till all the leaves fell off. There'd be so much noise and celebration as they asked God to provide the rain, the water that they needed. And, and if you've been reading along back in chapter 7 at this very same feast, it says, verses 37 and 38, on the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, now think of the context, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow out from within him. Do you get the context here? The loudest, the the biggest celebration about asking God to provide the water they need, and Jesus stands up and he says, you're thirsty, come to me. Anybody that believes in me, those streams of living water will flow right out of you. Okay, he's, he's kind of shaking their tree a little bit there. It's pretty radical. God, give us this water. And Jesus says, you want water? Come to me. I'm the one. There was one last ritual that was very important. Well, there's several around it, but another one that really ties in to what Jesus said today. Um, in about 165 B.C., the Jews were still under the oppression of Syria at that time. And, and the ruler of the Syrian regime actually came into Jerusalem and started totally desecrating everything that the Jews held dear. He actually took a pig and sacrificed it on the altar at the temple. Now, if you can imagine, that's one other thing I learned about going to Jerusalem. I'm not going to be able to eat any pork for two weeks being in Israel, right? But can you imagine, like, what would happen when they came and they sacrificed a pig on the altar, the, the, the outrage in the Jewish people. And during that time, about 166, 165, there was a revolution led by the Maccabees and they took over the temple again. Now you may know it's the story of Hanukkah. Once they took over this area of land again, they cleansed the temple. They wanted to re-purify it, to use it for God because it had been so desecrated by the, the country that was ruling over them. And that's when they, they, they pulled out the menorah, the lights, and there was only enough purified oil, they thought, to burn the candle, the, to burn it for one day, to burn the lamp for one day. And it burned for eight full days, which was the time it would take them to repurify the temple and the oil. It's, it's, it, that's the story behind the Festival of Lights, behind Hanukkah. Well, when that happened, it was already after harvest. But the leaders, the Maccabees, said it's so important that we remember that God has set us free again, that we're going to perform the Festival of Booths, even though it's the wrong time of year. And so they set up their seven days of, of these tents and they had their, their, their roofs open to the sky. And by the time Jesus got around, about 150 to 170 years later, they had done something. They had, they had built something in the court of the women. An artist's rendering looks a little bit like this. Four lamps, four candelabras, 75 feet tall in that court. And it was a way of mixing the light. Remember, they had this, this idea of light. They wanted to remember that the light was with them. 
the, the bowls on the top of these candles held 10 gallons of oil. And for wicks, they used the priest's old robes. Actually, I almost read the part from the Mishnah. The priest's old girdles, it actually said. I thought that was kind of funny, but I didn't want to read that to you. Um, but once again, in the Mishnah, this, this, this thing that, that was the written down oral tradition teaching of the rabbis, it says that when they lit these, that there was no courtyard in Jerusalem that was dark. The light was so bright from these four 75-foot-high candles that, that every courtyard in Jerusalem had light. Now, to understand the radical nature of what Jesus says, I am the light of the world, you have to get, when a Jew thinks of light, what they think of, the symbolic meaning of light. For them, it was the presence of God. That was, remember, as they went through the wilderness, that was the pillar of fire by night. They knew God was with them because there was this light in the sky. That's why the rabbis taught you that when you built your booth, your tent, that you left some space so that you could look up And you would see the light from the temple. Just like the people as they traveled through the desert would have space in the roof. And they would see the pillar of fire by night. And they would know that God was still with them. The psalmist would write in Psalm 27. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? That's what they were symbolizing with these huge 75 foot pillars of light in the temple court. That God is with us. John would write later in 1 John 1 5, this is the message we have heard from him and declare to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. That's why when Jesus said, I am the light of the world, John says, but nobody arrested him. Because you've got to understand the location of the statement. It says in verse 20, he spoke these words while teaching in the temple area near the place where the offerings were put. That's the court of the women. That's where the 75-foot candles were lit. In this place, Jesus stands up where everybody there is realizing the light symbolizes the presence of God. And he says, I am the light of the world. And John says, and nobody seized him. Nobody arrested him. See, that's why we move very quickly in verse 13 to the question of authority. Right away, after he says it, the Pharisees say, you're speaking as your own witness. On what authority do you say, Jesus, that you are God's presence right here? On what authority? Because his radical statement couldn't go without being challenged. The religious leaders question by what authority he says these things. They're looking for a justification of those words. How dare you say that you are God right here with us? From their perspective, there can't be a reason for that. But their perspective is the whole problem. You see, Jesus is moving them, like we saw last week, to an entirely different frame of reference. An entirely different way of looking at things. Look at verse 14. Even if I testify on my own behalf, my testimony is valid. For I know where I came from and where I'm going. But you have no idea where I came from or where I'm going. You judge by human standards. I pass judgment on no one. But if I do judge, my decisions are right because I am not alone. I stand with the Father who sent me. In your own law, it's written that the testimony of two men is valid. I'm the one who testifies for myself 
and my other witness is the Father who sent me. They're thinking, what is he talking about? That's why they say, Where, where's your father? What are you talking about? They, don't even, they can't even comprehend the things he's talking about. It's a whole different frame of reference. He's talking with them, but they don't get it. We have this celebrity that comes to our house every now and then. Her name is Chloe Brandt. Little Chloe. Do you guys know Chloe? Is she up there or is she she's sleeping? No, she's in the nursery. Okay, good. Anyway, I, there's a peculiar phenomena with Chloe at our house in that we all talk to her, but she doesn't really understand what we're saying. Like I could set up and say, Chloe, Jesus said I'm the light of the world and the light, you know, these 75 foot candles, and I'm smiling and she's laughing, but we have a totally different frame of reference. She doesn't get what I'm talking about. And I don't get what she's talking about either, if, you, if the truth be known. That's kind of what it's like. Jesus is saying something and they can't even grasp it. Because it's so foreign to the way they think. He says in verse 23, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, but I am not of this world. See, the sooner we figure out that there are going to be things in the spiritual life that we just don't understand because of the way we look at the world, the easier the spiritual life is going to be for us. And Jesus says, I've got two witnesses, guys. Even your own law says two witnesses, me and the Father. And they're like, where's your Father? See, what he's actually doing there, he says, if you knew the Father, you would know me too. If you knew me, you would know the Father. He's moving them in their frame of reference to what I would call a relational basis for the truth. See, our assumption, and we don't even realize it's our assumption, but that that the truth is this object that we have. Right? And Jesus is saying that coming to the truth is somehow relational. If you knew the Father, you would know me. There's a relationship involved. The very word for disciple is, is, is methetes in Greek, which means an apprentice. You know, you don't teach someone to be a plumber or a carpenter just in a classroom. Right? You have to go out with them and you work with them. You teach the skill, you watch them do it, you interact. It's a relational. That's what Jesus is saying. You've got to to know the truth and to move from your frame of reference to my frame of reference. It's relational. He says at the end of our text, actually the next couple verses, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And we always think that means I'll know the truth. Like if I had a test on the truth, I could spell it out. What I think he's saying is you will actually know me because that's what he says. I am the truth. That's another one we'll get to. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And it's this relationship with Jesus that helps us actually come to know the truth. How many of you have ever felt that way about God? You knew something was true, and then over time you've realized as you've walked with him, as you've interacted, that you were wrong. Anybody ever realize that? I realize it every single day. Right? There's this relational aspect. You guys think you know the truth about the Messiah, he says. But at some point, you're going to have to let your understanding go, live in a relationship with me, and let me take you into a whole different frame of reference. You're going to have to trust. That's the only way you're ever going to understand what kind of authority I have to say I'm the light of the world. And and ultimately, he ends up saying that this question of authority, it will be settled by sacrifice. In verse 28, he says... When you've lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am the one I claim to be and that I do nothing on on my own but speak what the Father has taught me. You'll understand my authority, guys, but it won't come in the way that you expect. 
It'll come through the cross. Now, the interesting thing at the cross, there was a guy at the cross, a Roman centurion, the antithesis of the Jewish religious leaders, the opposite side of the equation. And you remember it says that Jesus said, into your hands I commit my spirit, and he bowed his head and he gave up the ghost. And do you remember what the Roman centurion said? Truly this man was who? The son of God. Jesus said, you want to know if I'm speaking with authority, if I am who I say I am? When I'm lifted up, you'll see it. You'll understand. And, I mean, Paul writes about that in Philippians 2. He says, talking about Jesus being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And then he says, therefore God exalted him to the highest place, gave to him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That crucifixion followed by the resurrection is what sets Jesus' authority to say, I am the light of the world. I am God with you. See, the only way we can actually come to realize what it means that Jesus is the light of our world is by living in a relationship with him. The scripture calls it by walking in the light. John says in 1 John, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. You see, Jesus wades into our feasts and our festivals today and he says, I am the light of the world. I am God's presence with you. And we say, what does that mean? And he says, the only way you're going to learn that is by living in a relationship. You know, knowing the truth about Jesus, you've learned some things. How many of you knew about those 75-foot candles? Some of you did, I'm sure. You've learned about 75-foot candles in the temple court and that Jesus stood right there and said, I'm the light of the world. Wow, we've learned truth about God. But that's not the truth that he's talking about. That's a fact. The truth that he's talking about, the truth that you will know and the truth that will set you free is to know down here that Jesus is actually who he says he is. And what claims does this I am the light of the world statement make on our day-to-day lives? Three things. To walk in the light, we need to do at least three things. Surrender first to a new frame of reference. See verse 23 and 24. He says, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins. If you do not believe that I am the one I claim to be, you will indeed die in your sins. You see... The norm for life down here is different than the norm for the life of the kingdom of God. And we begin to see that when we let him be who he is, as we talked about last week, letting Jesus be who he is. When, when we hear him say, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. I don't, many of you remember the story about Jake with the, the little girl downstairs at, at girls club. And I think we were going through the Beatitudes in Sunday clubs. Is that what it was? And on the wall was, was the different things Jesus said. And one of the things he said is, love your enemies. And so she was kind of reading through and she came and she said, oh, Jake, Jake that's, that's wrong. That's not true. And Jake said, no, no, that's what Jesus... And she's like, no, 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 you wouldn't love your enemies. Why would you... See, she gets it. In the church, we just kind of gloss over it. But for her, that was like, who would ever love your enemies? Right? That's what Jesus says. And as we let Jesus be who he is, it takes us into this new frame of reference. And it, it begins to look totally different than we thought it would to be a Christian. I'm not sure how to live this out. The gospel calls us to, the, to this radical readjustment to a whole new way of thinking and living where we love our enemies, where we pray for the people who hurt us. If anyone has two shirts, he should share with the one who has none. 
right? Jesus changes our whole way, our whole frame of reference for the way that we are called to live. And it costs. And you know who it costs the most? Religious people. Us. Because <laughs> we, we very often have kind of boiled Christianity down to something that we're pretty comfortable with. We kind of like it. We think we've got Jesus and a nice padded pew to sit in. Safety from the world. And yet Jesus says that's the wrong frame. That's why the religious people struggled so much with him because he didn't fit what they thought he should be. And he does the same thing for me and you if we're listening. And as we come to Jesus, we need to be willing to let go of how we see the world and start embracing how he sees the world. That was, we've been involved in one of the spiritual formation retreats this weekend and that was the whole focus, being aware of what God is doing instead of being trapped by our own preconceived ideas. How we see the world, our frame of reference will shape what we see. That's why Paul writes in Romans 12, don't conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by going to church. No, that's not what he says. Be transformed by praying the sinner's prayer. He says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. What he says is once you come to Christ, you're, you have to learn to think and have a whole different frame of reference. You have to surrender to that. To live and walk in the light, we have to surrender to the light as it is, not as we wish it would be. And the one way to do this is focus on knowing in relationship. Verse 19, he says, you guys don't know me or my father. We have to start the process of developing a new frame of reference by, by knowing Jesus, not knowing about him, but knowing and living with him day by day by listening to his words and trying to, how does that apply to me? And God, show me what that means, letting the spirit begin to renew our mind and our thinking. We all, we all understand that there are different kinds of knowing, right? We know that. We know that you can factually learn something and yet it not influence your life. What he's talking about is, is a knowing like you would know your spouse or your best friend. I, I, I think back, I mentioned before, my relationship with Angela and how it shaped me over the years. I hadn't planned, it's not that I studied Angela and applied those concepts to my life. It's, it's that it shaped me because I lived in a relationship with her. Same thing for my, my best friend for years was a guy named Matt, and I've told you guys a lot about him. He shaped me because I knew him. Knowing him changed me. And it wasn't a, a cognitive process so much as it was a relational process. And that's what happens as we begin to surrender to a new frame of reference, as we begin to listen to who Jesus is. It takes time and it takes practice and it takes living in relationship to begin to know Jesus as a person and as a friend. Jesus said in, in John 10, I did tell you, but you didn't believe. The works I do, this is another part of authority. The works I do in my Father's name testify about me, but you do not believe because you are not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. Jesus is not saying I know them in that I know a list of my sheep. I know them. They know me. They hear my voice and they know it. And there's so much about shifting our frame of reference that comes down to hearing the voice of God calling you and responding to that. We come to know not just the facts about Jesus, but the sound of his voice. And then, then the challenge is to follow where the light leads. Verse 12, I am the light of the world. And, and 
that's the thing. God, what he's saying there is God is with you right now. He's here. He's, he's with us every single second of every single day. Every kind of encounter that we go in, we're never in it alone. He is with us. How do we live in that? How do we begin to see more deeply and follow what he's leading us to do? Jesus says in John seven seventeen, If anyone chooses to do God's will, he will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. It's, it's not that we get it all. We understand it, and then we follow. It's, it's we hear a call, we step, and then we see. Okay, yeah. And then we hear a call, and we step, and we see. That is the way a relational truth works out. Some of us want everything. I'm, that's me. I want everything spelled out. God, please tell me. Give me the next 25 years of my life so I can know, and then I'll be able to do it. And God says, I'll give, I won't even, I'm not even going to give you the next 25 seconds, Jeff. I'm just going to tell you what to do right now and right now. And part of that is learning and knowing things and studying the Bible. But part of it is living in a relationship and responding in those situations. And our tendency is to get distracted. We look at issues. We fixate on politics. And what what party would Jesus vote for, right? Because we want to know about him. To look at others and what they're doing. We, We try to fix situations. How many of you have become obsessed with somebody else's situation that needs to be fixed? And it's all you can think about. Keeps you awake at night. And we do that to keep from turning the light inward on ourselves and saying, what am I supposed to do in this? Where am I supposed to fall? You see, walking in the light is listening to the voice of Jesus and choosing to follow. The best example, and I've used this before, Jesus reinstates Peter. You remember, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Feed my sheep, feed my sheep, feed my sheep. And Peter's feeling on the hot seat because he's denied Jesus. And, and Jesus has asked three times, do you love me? And he sees John sitting over there. And, and there's a rumor that John's going to stay alive until Jesus returns. And, and so Peter says, let's, I can't take the heat, Jesus. Let's look at John for a while. What about him, he says in John 21, 22. And Jesus answered, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. Peter, stop trying to figure out what John's supposed to do to walk in the light, or what's going to happen to John. You walk in the light. What is it to you, what I'm doing with John? Follow me. Whatever it is that's holding you back, what, uh, when you think, you know, this is the one thing that really frustrates me about faith, or this is the one person that's really just driving me nuts. And Jesus says, what is that to you? Follow me. Because he is the light of the world. And he says, whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. That's the call. I am the light of the world means God is with you every second of every day. The question is, will you let the light shine on the step in front of you that you've got to take? And sit there long enough to hear what that is, and then take that step and wait for the next one. Instead of fixating on on this situation or that situation or this world problem or, or this neighbor that's, that's hurt my feelings. Will you look at the light, let it shine on you, and take the next step? He says, whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Let's pray. Now, we don't really get light in, in the way that you're the light. We want understanding. We want the full picture We want to have information that we can use. We want to be assured that the decisions we make in three weeks will be the right ones. 
And we want to know it now. And yet what you stand up and say to us is, I'm the light, follow me. Take this next step following me. And God, I pray, we see Jesus not being seized in the temple court, but we want to seize you. We want to hold tightly to you. We want to grab on and follow where you lead, one step at a time. Give us the wisdom and the courage to let the light shine on our own hearts, to let the light shine on the path that you would take us, and the courage to surrender and to follow. The courage to look at distractions that keep us away from what you're trying to do in our lives. Help us to hear you say, what is that to you? You must follow me. And give us the clarity to take a step and to trust that when the next step needs to be taken, you will make it clear. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.